welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. All right. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 16 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And we will open with a word of prayer. And I'm going to start by praying for Jamie. Um, she is, it's like days away, right? Days away. So let's, uh, let's just lift up uh, uh, Jamie and David and Jamie and the family. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, uh, for the blessings. Lord, as I it was out there in the foyer and hundreds of cookies out there, um, that they just each are like a single blessing, Lord. They just, uh, we could uh, just point to them and just recognize that we, we are a blessed people. And Lord, I want to lift up the blessing that you're about to bring into the Rushton family, or this little boy. Um, I know they've named him, but I forget what it is because I don't remember stuff like that. But Lord, um, you know this child already. And Lord, as, uh, as it could be days away, Lord, we pray, Lord, for your hand and your blessing upon them, Lord, that you would uh, bring this child um, um, into the world well. And that, Lord, that both uh, baby and mom would be um, healthy and strong through it. And I pray, Lord, for David and the, and the kids, Lord, that they, Lord, um, just uh, be able to rejoice in the whole process as, um, as they've got a little bit of experience at that kind of stuff. And so we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon them. And I want to lift up everyone else, Lord. There's so many that are here um, that are struggling with things, so many that are watching online that are going through difficult things, so many that are they're dealing with real serious pain and, and, and sickness issues. Lord, um, Lord, too many, Lord, for us to, to even to name and to count. And so we trust, Lord God, that you know each one of them by name. You know exactly what's going on with them. And you know what the plan is to, to, to bring them to that place of wholeness that you have for them. I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have to open up your word and allow your spirit to move in us and through us. And we pray, Lord, as we do, Lord, that we can take a moment and set aside all of our stuff, all of the things that we carry around with us, the the, the worries, the fears, the concerns, the, the, the anger and resentment, the, the whatever it is, Lord, that, that may reside in our heart, that, Lord, that you could just push it off to the side for us right now, that we might be able to sit and to receive from you what it is that you want to say by your spirit, out of your word, by your messenger. I thank you, Lord God, for your grace, mercy, and love. And we lift this day up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in chapter 16. And chapter 15 opened with Jesus having one of his regular confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. 
and they were regularly challenging him because he didn't do things the way they thought he should do them. This chapter is going to open with the Pharisees and another group, a different group, from the religious establishment. So we'll pick it up. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing him, asked, and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now the Pharisees were familiar with. The Sadducees are another group, and they were religious and political opposites. You couldn't have been more different. You know, the, the, the Pharisees were so different from the Sadducees, they rarely agreed on anything. Should sound like certain political groups that we know in our culture. The Pharisees believed in strict adherence to the law of Moses. And the, the, excuse me, the Sadducees were much more liberal. So the, the Pharisees were strict, and we would even describe them as legalistic. They had laws and rules and regulations, and they believed in absolute adherence to those. The Sadducees were a little, they were actually much more liberal, and they believed in, you know, much more feeling kind of things, much more, you know, you know, do what you want to do kinds of things, much more liberal. You know, the Sadducees, for one of the things, they, they didn't believe, they, they kind of leaned away from spiritual things. They didn't believe in, in angels. I don't know how you can read the Bible and not believe in angels, but that's, that was their, one of their things. They didn't believe in resurrection. Again, I don't know how you believe the, read the Bible and not believe in that, but they didn't. And a lot of other spiritual things as well. So them coming together for anything is weird. You know, it, is, it would be like Republicans and Democrats coming together and agreeing, being excited about something together. Be very, very unusual. It would be a sure sign of the apocalypse. They held these, these vastly different viewpoints. But they come together, and they're, and they're beginning to see Jesus as an existential threat to their position and power and influence. They want him gone. And so they come, and it says they come testing him. Now that word testing is the same word that is translated in Matthew 4 when Jesus went out in the wilderness is translated as tempted. And it has the same basic idea of to test and to tempt is to try to, to make something fail. That, that's the, that's, that was the, the main idea, to try to cause it, to try to trap, to try to cause to fail. And so they're trying to find a way to get to Jesus by, by challenging him to do or say something that they can accuse him of. And they're going to keep doing that as we continue through the, the, the gospel. So they're trying to trap Jesus. And their motivation, and, and you see that later on at, near the end of the Gospels, you see their motivation, because Pilate acknowledges, you know, when he's trying to release Jesus, he knows why, why these religious people have brought him out of jealousy, because Jesus is having a greater influence on the common people than the religious people are having, and they, they, they're, they're losing their influence and power. And so jealousy is a reason why they're doing it. Now, they say, I'm sorry, verse 2. 
They ask a sign for him. Um, now, does anybody remember if Jesus has done any miracles up to this point? I mean, like every week we're talking about his miracles, right? And that's what a sign is. A sign is a miracle. They say, do a miracle. A miracle from heaven. That's, that's being kind of specific. And it's a little different, but, you know, than maybe what, they, what we might have imagined. But he's done countless miracles. So many miracles that they couldn't keep track. Well, what more did they want to see? Did they want to see a, a blind person healed? No, wait, that, that he's already done that. Uh, how about a mute person speaking? No, he's done that. A deaf person hear, a crippled person walk. I, I mean, like, try to imagine some physical ailment that Jesus hasn't dealt with, and you can't find one that he didn't deal with. He even raised the dead for crying out loud. That's a pretty big deal. He multiplied loaves and fishes. On at least two occasions, there, who knows, there may have been more that aren't recorded. He, he delivered people from demons, including one guy that may have had thousands of demons in him. Jesus walked on water in the middle of a storm and then calmed the storm, though they may not have actually witnessed that. They may have only had that, heard about that from the disciples. So what else could Jesus have done? What, what else could he do that they haven't already seen? Now, that's possible. They were looking for something more spectacular than any of those things. Maybe they wanted the sun to stand still in the heavens, right? Could God do that? He did do it. So yes, he could do that. Maybe they, were, maybe they wanted to see the Jordan River turn to blood. Maybe that would have convinced them, right? Maybe a locust, maybe a whole bunch of locusts coming in. Maybe that would have convinced them. What are they looking for? They wanted something bigger. They wanted something more. There's a problem with miracles. For a miracle to have any effect on somebody, they must have faith before the miracle. Miracles do not create faith. I'm a, I'm a living witness of that. Kelly would point to, before I got saved, Kelly would say, look, a miracle. And I would laugh at her. I would mock her. That's not a miracle. Miracles don't create faith. You need faith to believe that a miracle is from God. If you don't have faith, you're not going to believe it's from God. The problem with these guys asking for a, a sign from heaven is they didn't have the faith it took to believe it was from God. How do we know that? They'd already accused Jesus of, of using the power of Satan to do miracles. Why would they believe any other miracle that he did? Someone who needs a miracle to believe so that they will believe will not be satisfied by any miracle. They will not believe it's enough for them to believe in God. Jesus didn't come to perform miracles. That's such an important thing for us to understand. That's not why he came. Why did Jesus come? He came to declare God's will to mankind in a way that had not been expressed before. He came to show the way to the kingdom of God. He came to declare that the kingdom of God was at hand. He came in weakness to die so that his power would overcome the power of sin in the grave. That's why he came. 
not to do miracles. He did the miracles, and a lot of them, because they confirmed the message. They verified the message. Sadducees and Pharisees had already decided to reject Jesus. They weren't there to hear about God. They weren't here to find out the truth about Jesus' message. They weren't there to know what was right and true. They were there to trap him. They had no desire to see God in this. They had no desire to know if God was in it. They all they wanted to do was get rid of this guy that was getting in the way of their power and influence. Nothing he would do would convince them. In the account of Lazarus and the rich man, it's in Luke 14 or 11, I can't remember which now. You know, you know, Moses said to him, hey, even, even if a dead man were to rise, they wouldn't believe. And you know, that was absolutely true. That was a prophecy that Jesus gave because he was going to rise from the dead and they still didn't believe. Today, there are people all around the world who will not believe that Jesus arose from the dead. Did he? Come on, church. Say it like you believe it. Yes! yes! He is risen! <laughs> I need your help today. Come on. They were unwilling to believe in Jesus. And no amount or type of miracle was going to change that. And so, brothers and sisters, if someone says to you, as soon as I see such and such and such and such, then I'll believe. No, they won't. Something's got to come on. Something's got to happen in here first. The greatest miracle that any person ever needs is a change of their heart. Their heart needs to be changed by God and that seed of faith planted so that they have any hope of seeing anything that is real and true about God. That's the only way. Don't pray for miracles for people. Pray for faith. Pray that they would believe because only in believing will they see the miracles. Over and over again in the scriptures, you see the phrase, to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. That's all about faith. If you don't have faith, you cannot hear, you cannot see. It's impossible. If the scribes, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were unwilling to believe in Jesus. And that unwillingness to believe blinds you to the truth. You cannot see the truth if you're unwilling to believe. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, the man without the Spirit of God, the natural man is someone who does not have the Spirit of God, is not saved. The spiritual man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. For you to understand the things of God, you must have the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're never going to understand the, the things of God. The, the spiritual things will make no sense to you. They'll be a mystery. They'll, they'll be foolishness to you. You, you'll look at them and say, people looking, people, you know, get, you know, going to, you know, why are you going to church every Sunday? Because that's where I spend time with Jesus and his people. That's dumb. Okay. That's foolish. They wouldn't actually see foolish. It's some, some other weird word. Okay. You can't see it. You can't possibly see it because you don't have the spirit. When you're talking to somebody who's the, a natural man or woman, 
they're not going to get it. You can say whatever you want. You can, be as, you can be the best possible speaker or teacher or preacher. You can quote scripture to them. But if they don't have the spirit of God, they are not going to get it. No matter how powerfully you convey the message. Still supposed to share it. Because every time you share the truth, it does something inside of them. That word goes in there. Now, it may get rejected. It may get, it may get hidden. It may get buried. It may get who knows what. But you keep, you keep giving. You keep sharing it. Because there's a point where even the Holy Spirit will show up and plant just one tiny seed of faith. And that's all that it takes to grow into something powerful and beautiful. So we keep sharing. No matter how often they reject it, no matter how often they call us foolish, no matter how often they, they disagree, no matter how, many, how often they argue with us, okay. Don't get mad at them. Don't get mad at them. Pity them. They can't get it. And it should make us sad. If someone rejects the message of Christ, <clears throat> The miracles are not going to change their mind to the truth. To ask for a miracle from Jesus and at the same time be unwilling to believe that he is the source of those miracles is hypocrisy. And Jesus calls them out for that right now. Verse 2. He answered. I love Jesus' answer sometimes. When they, when they do something, they something, and then he responds to them. You're thinking like, what? The Spirit of God helps us to understand those things. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, we've got to remember, who is he talking to when he says this? He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're like supposed to know spiritual stuff, right? Of anybody in the nation of Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees cover the full spectrum of the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. They, they're the ones, they're the leaders, they're the experts in these things. He's saying, you can't, you, can't even, you can't even discern spiritual things. They cannot see when something spiritual is going on right before their very eyes. Why is that? Again, it comes right back to faith. If you have faith, you can't see it. These miracles can happen right before your face. That was the only way, oh, the only way the Pharisees, back a few chapters, could look at Jesus healing people, healing and healing and healing, every kind of healing, every problem, every situation. They came and Jesus healed them. They, and you can't, that's the only way you could look at that and say, oh, that's the power of, of Beelzebub. That's the power of the devil at work. What? You know, some of these ones that come asking for this sign may have been there when the, when the accusation was made that Jesus was in collusion with the devil to work his miracles. Jesus doesn't hold back with these guys. Verse 4, a wicked 
an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he left them and departed. You got to love Jesus. You know, these are the most influential, the most powerful guys in the nation, and he just lets them have it. Wicked, adulterous. I mean, two, about two of the worst accusations you could make to a religious leader. You know, walk up to Joel Osteen and say, hey, you wicked, adulterous person. Don't do it. Just leave him alone. God will deal with him. Jesus said, I'm not going to do any more signs for you. Now I want you to catch something. Will Jesus do more miracles after he talks to these guys? Yeah, a lot more. See, I'm not going to give you any different signs. I'm not going to give you bigger and more and more spectacular signs. Something, you know, something, you know, the moon falling out of the sky kind of a thing. But I have one more sign I'm going to give you. And it's the sign of Jonah. Jonah, you know, a quick summary of the whole book of Jonah is, I'm going to give it to you in like 30 seconds here. Jonah was a picture of what Jesus was going, what he'd come to do, what he was going to do. If you, if you study through the book of Jonah, one of the things you see, that one of the things he does, you know, Jonah running away from God, God has a job for him, he runs away, God sends a storm, storm's going to destroy the ships, you know, kill everybody, it appears, and, and Jonah says, uh, you know, okay, I know why it's happening, it's happening because of me, here's the deal, throw me overboard, Jonah says to the sailors, he offers to sacrifice himself, who does that sound like? Come on. Jesus. He offers to sacrifice himself, just as Jesus offered to sacrifice himself for our sins. He goes into the water, which is a picture of death. Did Jesus die for us? Yes, he did. He was in the belly of the great fish for how long? Three days. It's a picture of Jesus being in the grave for three days. And then, and then that great fish, the, the word there is, is pretty graphic. The, the fish vomited him out on the beach, which, which is, you know, a very unfortunately graphic image of the resurrection. All through the book of Jonah is a picture of Christ. Except for the last chapter. Last chapter is all Jonah. That's about the grace of God in that last chapter. Jesus was the sign. The sign they were looking for was Jesus. Who was Jesus? God in the flesh. I'm thinking, what greater sign could you have of God's plan for humanity that God steps down out of heaven, out of the perfection of heaven and puts on frail human flesh and walks among us as one of his, one of his creation. John 1, 1 in ver verses 1 and 14 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and 
truth. There was no greater sign that they could ask for than God, <clears throat> excuse me, in their presence. For all of us too, there's no greater miracle that you can ask God for than his presence. Now we can ask God for anything right now. I've got a very very particular physical request I'm making of him. You know, God, give me the strength to stand up here and give this message. My back is angry right now. But you know what? I just want to know he's here. I'll, I can take anything if I know he's here. If I know he's present, if I know he's in my life, he's in my heart, he's wrapping me up with his arm. I don't need anything else but that. I don't need provision. I don't need protection. I don't need success. I don't need happiness. I don't need any of the material, worldly things that we often chase after as long as I have him with me. If I have his presence, I need nothing else. That doesn't mean I'm not going to enjoy the other stuff. I will. You know, if he makes my back feel better, I'm going to praise him for that but I'm going to praise him for his presence regardless. You don't need anything else but Jesus. Especially as we come to a time, you know, giving and receiving. And, you know, I'm thankful for, I'm thankful for the, you know, the opportunity to give and, and to receive both of those. But, you know, again, it's just, let's not forget what's really important the greatest present you can possibly have is his presence in your life. Rejoice in that. Be thankful for that. Even if you don't get the perfect gift for Christmas. I already have it because I have Kelly. And a puppy. And I'm not sure that puppy is the perfect gift, but that's another, that's another conversation. She's wonderful. So Jesus has this, he deals, he has this conversation and, and, and he's finished, kind of finished in this text with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though, though they, they still remain a source of the topic as we go through. But then he takes the disciples and he goes to the other side of the lake, verses five and six. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he's still focused. He's still got the image of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there's something about the Pharisees and Sadducees, the way they approach Jesus, that relates to this topic here, that the disciples are figuring out, okay, we didn't, we didn't bring any food with us to the other side, right? When you see, when you see bread, you, you imagine not just bread, but food in general. So they don't have any food. And they're probably talking about it like, you know, somebody, you know, Peter's probably saying, dang, I'm hungry. Anybody got, anybody got, you know, a pita, you know, pita chips and some hummus or something? I wonder what I'm thinking about. So, so they're talking about food and Jesus says to them, beware, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, as we get a little bit further into the text, into the text, we're going to see Jesus is not referring to bread, which he's going to deal with here in just a minute, but he's talking about false teaching. This is a persistent theme throughout the New Testament. If you want to 
One, one of the things you can do if you really want to get an, a, a, a better overview of the New Testament is read a bunch of it really fast. You know, you know, we normally take it in small chunks, you know, depending on how you're reading, you know, chapter two, three, four, five, whatever, whatever your daily things. But if you really want to challenge yourself, read a bunch of it at once. Like, like challenge yourself to read through the New Testament in a month, and, 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 which is a challenge. I, I, I give you that. But you'll see some of the bigger themes more clearly that way if you do that. <clears throat> with the new year coming up. Just a quick reminder, it's a great time. If you, ha if you haven't already developed a pattern of reading your Bible, now is a great time to start. We have the one-year Bibles. I've got some other ones on the way. They'll be here next weekend. So one-year Bibles, uh, my, my devotional books are out there. There's a way to develop a pattern of reading your Bible. I highly encourage it. Something I've done for over 20 years, I've done it. Just read through the Bible, you know, in, in an organized, systematic way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were, they were both religious and political groups. So they, they, they kind of tended into both categories. Where we tend to separate religion and politics um, in an unhealthy way. We, we separate the two. They were, they were much more combined in that time. <clears throat> Almost every book of the New Testament includes something about false teaching because false teaching affects not just religion, but politics. If, if false teaching is entering into a culture, not only does it affect the, the religious relationship people have with God, it also affects their relationship with one another. And that it gets into the area of politics. One example of the of the the references to false teaching is Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. Doctrine are those things that we teach. You know, that we have, a, we, have a, we have things that we teach, things that we believe to be true from what God's word says. That cause division contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Paul is saying to the church in Rome, watch out for Christians who are teaching things that are not right doctrine, false doctrine, false teaching. Watch out for them because they create division and they create offenses. Watch out for them. Avoid them, he says. Stay away from them. Now we're going to come back to that topic. Let's, let's move on. Verse 7. And they, the disciples, reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. They're still thinking about food. They're hungry. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <clears throat> the sad reality of our faith is that we tend to be forgetful people. You know, that, that all of us can look back 
Does anybody here remember getting saved? Was there any greater miracle in your life than that? Could God have done anything more significant in your life in that moment than that? And, and if you're in the faith for any length of time, I'm guessing one or two of you have probably prayed at some point in your life, right? And, 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 and God has actually answered your prayer, maybe, right? And, and, and I know personally, he's answered some of my prayers in miraculous ways, ways that I can say, okay, that can only be God. How is it that we come to another thing, another thing happens in our life, and we're, oh, no, God, why have you forsaken me, God? Like, we forget all the amazing things about who God is, all the things we learn about God. And we act as if God has never done anything for us. I, I know I'm probably the only one. We must regularly remind ourselves of the amazing and wonderful and miraculous things that God has done for us. Because the God that did those things is the same God who loves me today and knows what I need before I even ask him of it. I just have to trust him. You know, we need to pray better because that's how we're going to stand in the difficult times, like, you know, the disciples, they're really suffering. They have no food. Jesus says, hey, remember, I took five loaves and two fish, and, you know, you know I, oh, oh, by the way, I created everything out of nothing. You know, so, you know, I could probably handle this too. You know, if you need some fish, just tell me. I'll bring them right up to the boat. And Jesus redirects them back to the main topic. Let's reverse verse 11 again. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were similar in some respects, but they weren't the same. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, like I said, they were, they were opposites, spiritual, political opposites. But they sought to interpret Scripture based on man's thinking. And so they had a way of interpreting Scripture. The, the Pharisees interpreted Scripture one way, and the Sadducees interpreted Scripture another way. The Pharisees, again, very legalistic, and so they took the plain reading of the scriptures and then they added to them rules and regulations and commandments and ordinances and traditions. Hundreds of them. That's how they, and they sought to control people's behaviors based on that. A line saying, this is how we define holiness. And so if you do these things, all of these things, then you are holy. You are right by God. The Sadducees had a completely different view. They viewed the scriptures as guidelines. We ought to try, you know, to follow them. But a lot of these things are spiritual, not literal. And so they would make, you know, turn them into allegories, into parables, into these different things. So that, you know, the idea that basically we want to do what we want to do. 
And so we'll interpret scripture so that we can do what we want to do, not necessarily what God wants to do. And so the Pharisees had this very, very strict, rigid system of rules. The Sadducees were very liberal. They got along very well with Herod, right? Herod was a great guy, right? He was very, you know, no, no, he was a bad guy, but the Sadducees got along with him. What does that tell you about them? They weren't quite right. The Pharisees wanted an ultra-literal interpretation of the Scriptures, and the Sadducees wanted a non-literal interpretation of the Scriptures. We see the same thing going on in the world around us as well. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was the adding to or taking away from the Scriptures. I believe we have in our hand this book. Everything that God wants us to know about him. Not just him, but us as well. As we study scripture, we learn about God. We also learn about ourselves. And we learn about how we are to live and walk in this kingdom. Now, I believe we ought to take literally, as as much as we possibly can, take the Bible literally. If it says it, take it literally. There are places where it's symbolic. He tells, the Bible tells us where that symbolic things are, and we should do that. But adding to or taking away, that is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you, wanna, if you try to add to it and say, oh, you need to, yeah, Jesus is good. You know, the, the, the Judaizers, Jesus is good, but you also need to follow the law of Moses. You need to get circumcised. That's adding to the Scriptures. The scriptures don't say that. Both groups wanted more from God than what he gave them. And that's a danger for all of us. You know, you know, I don't know if you've ever raised children. If you give them a cookie, what do they want? More. More. If you give them two cookies, what do they want? More. It's hardwired into the sin nature. We can't help ourselves. Even as adults, that's real in us. Now we try to, most of us try to control it. Most of us. We try to control it. I'm going to limit myself to a dozen cookies. (laughs) What? Is that too many? Okay. It's one of the first traits we see is, this, is, this, is wanting more. That part of us growing in our faith is trusting God with exactly what he's given us. Nothing more and nothing less. You know, do I want God to do something in my physical body? Yes, I do. But do I trust him? to deal with it when he is ready to do that? I do. Now, I should be listening to Kelly better when she's giving me directions on how I need to fix it, but I don't. That's right. She's, you need to do this, this, and this. Okay. Yes, dear. That's my response. Then I do whatever I want. I'm still, I'm still a work in progress. Might as well just admit it before everybody. Listen, we have to learn to accept God, exactly what he's given us. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, God is able to make all 
grace abound. How much of God's grace can you get? All of it. God's grace is what you need day to day, right? Is that, is that not everything that we need is God's grace? You need God's grace to function. You need God's grace to breathe. Did you know that? Did you know that every heartbeat is in a function, is an expression of God's grace to you? Because you don't have to. God can say, okay, we're done. Every heartbeat, every breath, every gift that he gives you is an expression of his grace. And he is able to make all grace abound. Everything that you could possibly imagine or want or desire, he can. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Here, here's how faith ought to function in us. I believe God is able to give me anything and everything that I need. There is no limit to what God can give me. None. But he doesn't give me everything. And I, I sometimes don't know why. But I trust him. Because he's able to, that he is, he, is, he is able to make me sufficient. That everything that I need is enough. Even when physically or, or the flesh in me says it's not enough. I don't know about you. I've had those times, Right? where I feel like I, I should be getting, I need more, God. I need more of something. But God is able to give me all. And I have to just trust him and believe that. The doctrine, the doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees proved they wanted more from God than what he was giving them. Both Pharisees and their ultra-legalistic ultra approach to the Scriptures and the Sadducees and their ultra-liberal expression of the, of the Scriptures. Both of them. The, the, what God said wasn't enough. What he, what he offered, what he was giving wasn't enough. So we have this book, this marvel, this miracle of God. If you, you know, it always, it always makes me a little sad when I see a Bible, you know, in the, well, they don't have these anymore, you know, the back window of the car, you know, it's tucked away somewhere. You can tell it's been in there for months where, you know, they don't look at it, it's just in the car. The Bible is a precious gift that God has given us. He's given it so we can know him. There is no other way. There's no other resource. There's no other, other way of getting to know God apart from this book. We should cherish it as one of the most precious gifts that God has given to us. Now, now the actual book itself is just, is just paper. But the words are the power of God unto salvation the power to heal, the power to restore, the power to reconcile, the power to, to live is found in these words. And we should treat them as precious. We also should treat them as a cohesive whole. There is one book, not 
two, not Old Testament and New Testament. It's one book written by men, God inspired to record his words. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's important, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That phrase, given by inspiration of God, is one Greek word that means literally God-breathed. Every word in this book, God breathed it with the same breath that he gave life to humanity. That same breath was breathed into men so they record his words. You know, to diminish this book and say, well, it was written by men. No, God, God used men to record his words. And he breathed into them the, these, these very precious things that, that if, you, if you study the Bible, not, not the words of the Bible, but the actual, the, the way the Bible was put together, the way the Bible has been protected and maintained, the, you, know, the, 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 you know, go and study the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what, what they discovered when they found those and they compared them to what they are, it is absolutely miraculous that this book exists the way that it does. If you can't, if you could study all these things and see it and recognize that there is no other book on earth that is protected like this one. There are, you know, it is, it is ancient in its age and yet it's perfect in its composition. It's amazing, amazing. The words themselves are God-breathed. And just as the scriptures are God-breathed, so must be the interpretation of scripture. The problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, man was interpreting the scriptures, not God. In 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20 says this. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. That means I do not have a right to give you my interpretation of scripture. That's not what I'm called to do. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. My goal as a pastor teacher is to study God's word as with the influence of the Holy Spirit, with the power of the Holy Spirit, to study God's word in faith, believing that it is truth and it is true. I believe that it is, it is, the, it is every word of it's true and it is the source of all truth. Then, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I interpret it based on what God wants to say to his people. The interpretation is saying, we say all these things, okay, this is what the word says, but what does it mean? What does it mean to us? How does it apply 
2,000 years after it was written. How do you apply that to today? How do you, how do you apply the parables, you know, the pair of the sower and the seed? How do you apply that to, you know, 2023? I, I, I cannot bring my interpretation of that. I must allow the Holy Spirit to provide that to you. That's my goal is to do that. And, and, and if you're praying for me, that's what you ought to be praying for me, that I yield myself fully to the Holy Spirit so that as I'm interpreting these scriptures, trying to understand them the way God meant, intended for them to be understood and to be interpreted and then to bring the application that he has for you. I trust the Holy Spirit. As I'm speaking, I trust him to speak through me. Though if I ever start talking about cookies, that's probably not the Holy Spirit. That's probably Rick talking, but that's another conversation. Listen, here's the deal. False teaching is real. And sadly, it's prevalent in the church today. There are still Pharisees. There are still Sadducees. Not not Jewish ones. Well, there are probably still some of those around somewhere too. But Christian ones. Christian Pharisees. Legalists that they're focused on the rules and the regulations. And there are Sadducees, probably more Sadducees than Pharisees right now, focused on on living the way I want to, but giving lip service to the word of God. How do we protect ourselves from that? Well, one way. You gotta know the book. That's why we preach it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We don't skip things. We talk about everything. We talk about all the hard stuff. We talk about the stuff that's easy to understand. We talk about the stuff that's hard to understand. We talk about the stuff that you might not agree with. You must know what God's word says. So that if somebody like me stands up here and says something, there's something in you. If they're they're leaning toward the false, something in you warns you. Because wait a minute, that doesn't, something doesn't sound right. And just to let you know, I don't have any problem with somebody coming to me and challenging me. If I say something you don't agree with, come talk to me. I, I, I've been wrong. I think, I think I've recorded twice now that it's happened. <laughs> no, I've been really blessed. You know, God, God protects me when I'm sharing, when I'm trying to share by his spirit. I've listened to some of my old messages and, and you know, every now and then, like, I could have said that better, but... Yeah, God's good. He protects us. Learn God's word and then learn to trust the Holy Spirit to speak to you. As you're listening to someone, as you're hearing something, you learn to trust the Holy Spirit to guide you. And then, here's, this is a challenge. This is one that I, I kind of direct you toward me. Examine the life of anyone you would allow to teach you. And we should allow people to teach us. All of us should. I do. Allow someone to teach you before you do it. Examine their life. And if, and if their life is worth imitating, then you allow them to teach you. But if you find, if you find reasons to doubt, to question, you need to, you need to know the truth. Look for evidence of God's presence in their life. Look, at, look for evidence of love. Look for evidence of truth. Look for evidence of faith. Look for evidence of grace and mercy and peace. Look for evidence of those things. Because if, if, the, if God has called them to that place of pastor-teacher, 
you should be able to see that. It may not, it won't be perfect. I promise you it won't be perfect, but there should be evidence of it. This is something we need to take seriously. Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Even a little bit of false teaching can radically mess up your faith. This is important because faith is important, right? Do we acknowledge that faith is important? Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Faith. Faith is how we live this life. Faith is how we're saved. Faith is how we discern the right from the wrong, the truth from the lie. Faith is everything. And so false teaching is the opposite of that. And we need to know it and we need to discern it. We need to stay away from it. The bottom line here, my encouragement to you is protect yourself. Know what you believe. And then know what your church believes. And those two should be pretty close, right? Does that make sense? You know, if you believe something radically different than what your church believes, one of you may not be right. We're going to pray, and then we're going to do communion. And I'm going to encourage you that, you know, I, I, I think we're doing a good job here as a church. Um, we're, we're very diligent. We're very careful. We, we revere the Word of God. We believe the Word of God is everything. Matter of fact, if you ask us, what do we believe is the most important thing? We're going to tell you it's the Word of God. Everything else we do is secondary. The Word of God must come first. It must be the most important thing. It must be the focus of everything that we do. You'll notice, even as we do the offering and the, and the, and the prayers and everything, the Word of God is present throughout that. Why is that? Because we put the Word of God at such a high level. It is everything. And if we will guard our heart with the Word of God and allow the Spirit of God to bring life to the Word of God, then we're to be protected from false teaching. But you have to be diligent because it doesn't come to you in, you know, like a, you know, the, the guy in the red spandex and the pitchfork with horns. It doesn't come at you in a way that you might notice it. Always have to be diligent. Always have to keep your guard up. So we're going to pray and then we're going to do communion. But I want you to just, just ask God to, to check your heart. Do you love God's word with a deep abiding passion because that's what's going to transform your faith. Heavenly Father, we do come and we thank you for this time and we thank you for this place and we ask, Lord God, as we prepare our hearts for communion that, Lord, that you would, you would minister the truth that we need that we might be able to, to be able to commune with you the way that we should. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you've given us this book that we might know you. And not just know you, but know ourselves, to know each other, to, to love you, to love each other. 
that everything we, everything we need is found in you. We talked about, especially as we approach the, the Christmas season and we, and we start thinking about things. And, and, and there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with things. But we must never forget the greatest thing is not a thing but a person. And that person is you. And so even as we take this time to, to commune with you, Lord, remind us, Lord, that's the main thing. Especially as we commune with you over the, over, at the Lord's table, where we remind ourselves that you died for our sins, that your blood shed forgives us of our sins. That all happens by faith. So Lord, we thank you for this time. And we ask, Lord, as we prepare ourselves for communion, that you would, that you would take and, and do that work in our hearts that needs to be done. We praise you, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.